Section twenty eight of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume One by James Boswell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Johnson's Friends in seventeen fifty two. From Mr. Francis Barber, I have had the following authentic and artless account of the situation in which he found him recently after his wife's death. He was in great affliction. Mrs. Williams was then living in his house, which was in Gough Square. He was busy with the dictionary. Mr. Shields and some others of the gentlemen who had formerly written for him used to come about him. He had then little for himself, but frequently sent money to Mr. Shields when in distress. The friends who visited him at that time were chiefly Dr. Bathurst. Footnote. Dr. Bathurst, though a physician of no inconsiderable merit, had not the good fortune to get much practice in London. He was therefore willing to accept of employment abroad, and to the regret of all who knew him, fell a sacrifice to the destructive climate in the expedition against the Havana. Mr. Langton recollects the following passage in a letter from Dr. Johnson to Mr. Beauclerc the havana is taken a conquest too dearly obtained for bathurst died before it vix priamus tantitota troia fuit boswell the quotation is from ovid heroides book one line four johnson post december twenty first seventeen sixty two wrote to baretti Bathurst went physician to the army and died at the Havana. Mr. Harwood, in his History of Lichfield, page 451, gives two letters from Bathurst to Johnson, dated 1757. In the postscript to one, he says, I know you will call me a lazy dog, and in truth I deserve it, but I am afraid I shall never mend. I have indeed long known that I can love my friends without being able to tell them so. Adieu, my dearest friend. He calls Johnson the best of friends, to whom I stand indebted for all the little virtue and knowledge that I have. Nothing, he continues, I think, but absolute want can force me to continue where I am. Jamaica, he calls, this execrable region. Hawkins, Life, page 235, says that Bathurst, before leaving England, confessed to Johnson that in the course of ten years' exercise of his faculty, he had never opened his hand to more than one guinea. Johnson perhaps had Bathurst in mind when many years later he wrote, A physician in a great city seems to be the mere plaything of fortune. His degree of reputation is for the most part totally casual. They that employ him know not his excellence, they that reject him know not his deficience. By any acute observer who has looked on the transactions of the medical world for half a century, a very curious book might be written on the fortune of physicians works volume eight page four seven one in the footnote the friends who visited him at that time were chiefly dr bathurst 
and mr diamond an apothecary in cork street burlington gardens with whom he and mrs williams generally dined every sunday there was a talk of his going to iceland with him which would probably have happened had he lived there were also mr cave dr hawksworth mr ryland footnote mr ryland was one of the members of the old club in ivy lane who met to dine in seventeen eighty three mr payne was another post end of seventeen eighty three and a footnote merchant on tower hill mrs masters the poetess who lived with mr cave footnote johnson revised her volumes post under november the nineteenth seventeen eighty three and a footnote mrs carter and sometimes mrs macaulay footnote catherine sawbridge sister of mrs question mark mr alderman sawbridge was born in seventeen thirty three but it was not till seventeen sixty that she was married to dr macaulay a physician so that barber's account was incorrect either in date or name croker for mr alderman sawbridge see post may the seventeenth seventeen seventy eight note and a footnote also mrs gardiner wife of a tallow chandler on snow hill not in the learned way but a worthy good woman footnote see post under november the nineteenth seventeen eighty three johnson bequeathed to her a book to keep as a token of remembrance post december the ninth seventeen eighty four i find her name in the year seventeen sixty five in the list of subscribers to the edition of swift's works in seventeen volumes so that perhaps she was more in the learned way than barber thought End of footnote. mr now sir joshua reynolds footnote. reynolds did not return to england from italy till the october of this year seven months after mrs johnson's death Taylor's Reynolds, volume 1, page 87. He writes of his thirty years' intimacy with Dr. Johnson. He must have known him, therefore, at least as early as 1754. Ibid, volume 2, page 454, end of footnote. Mr. Miller, Mr. Dodsley, Mr. Bouquet, Mr. Payne, of Paternoster Row, booksellers, Mr. Strawn, the printer, the Earl of Orrery, Lord Southwell, footnote. Lord Southwell, said Johnson, was the most qualityed man I ever saw. Post, March the 23rd, 1783, and a footnote. Mr. Garrick. Robert Levitt, Itard 43. Many are no doubt omitted in this catalogue of his friends and in particular his humble friend mr robert levitt an obscure practiser in physic amongst the lower people his fees being sometimes very small sums sometimes whatever provisions his patients could afford him but of such extensive practice in that way that mrs williams has told me his walk was from houndsditch to marylebone it appears from johnson's diary that their acquaintance commenced about the year seventeen forty six and such was johnson's predilection for him and fanciful estimation of his moderate abilities 
that i have heard him say that he should not be satisfied though attended by all the college of physicians unless he had mr levitt with him ever since i was acquainted with dr johnson and many years before as i had been assured by those who knew him earlier mr levitt had an apartment in his house or his chambers and waited upon him every morning through the whole course of his late and tedious breakfast he was of a strange grotesque appearance stiff and formal in his manner and seldom said a word while any company was present Footnote. the account given of levitt in the gentleman's magazine volume fifteen page one hundred and one shows that he was a man out of the common run he would not otherwise have attracted the notice of the french surgeons the writer says mr levitt though an englishman by birth became early in life a waiter at a coffee-house in paris the surgeons who frequented it finding him of an inquisitive turn and attentive to their conversation made a purse for him and gave him some instructions in their art they afterwards furnished him with the means of further knowledge by procuring him free admission to such lectures in pharmacy and anatomy as were read by the ablest professors of that period when he lived with johnson much of the day was employed in attendance on his patients who were chiefly of the lowest rank of tradesmen the remainder of his hours he dedicated to hunter's lectures and to as many different opportunities of improvement as he could meet with on the same gratuitous conditions all his medical knowledge said johnson and it is not inconsiderable was obtained through the ear though he buys books he seldom looks into them or discovers any power by which he can be supposed to judge of an author's merit dr johnson has frequently observed that levitt was indebted to him for nothing more than house-room his share of a penny loaf at breakfast and now and then a dinner on a sunday his character was rendered valuable by repeated proof of honesty tenderness and gratitude to his benefactor as well as by an unwearied diligence in his profession his single failing was an occasional departure from sobriety johnson would observe he was perhaps the only man who ever became intoxicated through motives of prudence he reflected that if he refused the gin or brandy offered him by some of his patients he would have been no gainer by their cure as they might have nothing else to bestow on him this habit of taking a fee in whatever shape it was exhibited could not be put off by advice he would swallow what he did not like nay what he knew would injure him rather than go home with an idea that his skill had been exerted without recompense though he took all that was offered him he demanded nothing from the poor the writer adds that johnson never wished him to be regarded as an inferior or treated him like a dependent mrs piozzi says when johnson raised contributions for some distressed author or wit in want he often made us 
or more than amends by diverting descriptions of the lives they were then passing in corners unseen by anybody but himself and that odd old surgeon whom he kept in his house to tend the out-pensioners and of whom he said most truly and sublimely that in misery's darkest caverns known etc piozzi's anecdotes page one hundred and eighteen no but madam is a brutal fellow but i have a good regard for him for his brutality is in his manners not in his mind madame d'arblay's diary volume one page one hundred and fifteen whoever called in on johnson at about midday found him and levitt at breakfast johnson in deshabille as just risen from bed and levitt filling out tea for himself and his patron alternately no conversation passing between them all that visited him at these hours were welcome a night's rest and breakfast seldom failed to refresh and fit him for discourse and whoever withdrew went too soon hawkins's johnson page four three five how much he valued his poor friend he showed at his death post january the twentieth seventeen eighty two end of footnote sir joshua reynolds anno domini seventeen fifty two one of dr johnson's school itart forty three the circle of his friends indeed at this time was extensive and various far beyond what has been generally imagined to trace his acquaintance with each particular person if it could be done would be a task of which the labour would not be repaid by the advantage but exceptions are to be made one of which must be a friend so eminent as sir joshua reynolds who was truly his dulce decus Footnote. O et praesidium et dulce decus meum my joy my god and sweetest good preach horisodes book one number one line two end of footnote and with whom he maintained an uninterrupted intimacy to the last hour of his life when johnson lived in castle street cavendish square he used frequently to visit two ladies who lived opposite to him miss cotterell's daughters of admiral cotterell reynolds used also to visit there and thus they met Footnote. it was in seventeen thirty eight that johnson was living in castle street at the time of reynolds's arrival in london in seventeen fifty two he had been living for some years in gough square boswell i suppose only means to say that johnson's acquaintance with the cotterells was formed when he lived in their neighbourhood northcote life of reynolds volume one page sixty nine says that the cotterells lived opposite to reynolds's but his account seems based on a misunderstanding of boswell End of footnote. mr reynolds as i have observed above had from the first reading of his life of savage conceived a very high admiration of johnson's powers of writing his conversation no less delighted him and he cultivated his acquaintance with the laudable zeal of one who was ambitious of general improvement footnote. 
we are both of dr johnson's school wrote reynolds to some friend for my own part i acknowledge the highest obligations to him he may be said to have formed my mind and to have brushed from it a great deal of rubbish those very persons whom he has brought to think rightly will occasionally criticise the opinions of their master when he nods but we should always recollect that it is he himself who taught us and enabled us to do it taylor's reynolds volume two page four six one burke writing to malone said you state very properly how much reynolds owed to the writings and conversation of johnson and nothing shows more the greatness of sir joshua's parts than his taking advantage of both and making some application of them to his profession when johnson neither understood nor desired to understand anything of painting Ibid, page six three eight reynolds there can be little question is thinking of johnson in the following passage in his seventh discourse what partial and desultory reading cannot afford may be supplied by the conversation of learned and ingenious men which is the best of all substitutes for those who have not the means or opportunities of deep study there are many such men in this age and they will be pleased with communicating their ideas to artists when they see them curious and docile if they are treated with that respect and deference which is so justly their due into such society young artists if they make it the point of their ambition will by degrees be admitted there without formal teaching they will insensibly come to feel and reason like those they live with and find a rational and systematic taste imperceptibly formed in their minds which they will know how to reduce to a standard by applying general truth to their own purposes better perhaps than those to whom they owned owed the original sentiment reynolds works edition eighteen twenty four volume one page one four nine another thing remarkable to show how little sir joshua crouch to the great is that he never gave them their proper titles i never heard the words your lordship or your ladyship come from his mouth nor did he ever say sir in speaking to any one but dr johnson and when he did not hear distinctly what the latter said which often happened he would then say sir that he might repeat it northcote's conversations page two eight nine gibbon called johnson reynolds's oracle gibbon's miscellaneous works volume one page one four nine see also post under december twenty nine seventeen seventy eight end of footnote sir joshua indeed was lucky enough at their very first meeting to make a remark which was so much above the commonplace style of conversation that johnson at once perceived that reynolds had the habit of thinking for himself the ladies were regretting the death of a friend to whom they owed great obligations upon which reynolds observed you have however the comfort of being relieved from a burden of gratitude Footnote. 
the thought may have been suggested to reynolds by johnson's writings in the rambler number eighty seven he had said there are minds so impatient of inferiority that their gratitude is a species of revenge and they return benefits not because recompense is a pleasure but because obligation is a pain in number one hundred and sixty six he says to be obliged is to be in some respect inferior to another End of footnote. they were shocked a little at this alleviating suggestion as too selfish but johnson defended it in his clear and forcible manner and was much pleased with the mind the fair view of human nature which it exhibited like some of the reflections of rochefoucauld the consequence was that he went home with reynolds and supped with him the miss cotterells anno domini seventeen fifty two sir joshua told me a pleasant characteristical anecdote of johnson about the time of their first acquaintance when they were one evening together at the miss cotterells the then duchess of argyle and another lady of high rank came in johnson thinking that the miss cotterells were too much engrossed by them and that he and his friend were neglected as low company of whom they were somewhat ashamed grew angry and resolving to shock their supposed pride by making their great visitors imagine that his friend and he were low indeed he addressed himself in a loud tone to mr reynolds saying how much do you think you and i could get in a week if we were to work as hard as we could as if they had been common mechanics footnote northcote tells the following story on the authority of miss reynolds it is to be noticed however that in her recollections crocus boswell page eight three two the story is told somewhat differently johnson reynolds and miss reynolds one day called on the miss cotterells johnson was the last of the three that came in when the maid seeing this uncouth and dirty figure of a man and not conceiving he could be one of the company laid hold of his coat just as he was going upstairs and pulled him back again saying you fellow what is your business here i suppose you intended to rob the house this most unlucky accident threw him into such a fit of shame and anger that he roared out like a bull what have i done what have i done northcote's reynolds volume one page seventy three bennett langton eitart forty three his acquaintance with bennett langton esq of langton in lincolnshire another much valued friend commenced soon after the conclusion of his rambler which that gentleman then a youth had read with so much admiration that he came to london chiefly with the view of endeavouring to be introduced to its author Footnote. johnson writing to langton on january the ninth seventeen fifty nine describes him as towering in the confidence of twenty-one the conclusion of the rambler was in march seventeen fifty two when langton must have been only fourteen or just fifteen at most johnson's first letter to him dated may the sixth seventeen fifty five shows that at that time their acquaintance had been but short 
Langton's subscription to the thirty-nine articles in the register of the University of Oxford was on July the seventh, seventeen fifty-seven. Johnson's first letter to him at Oxford is dated June the twenty-eighth, seventeen fifty-seven. End of footnote. By a fortunate chance, he happened to take lodgings in a house where Mr. Levitt frequently visited and having mentioned his wish to his landlady she introduced him to mr levitt who readily obtained johnson's permission to bring mr langton to him as indeed johnson during the whole course of his life had no shyness real or affected but was easy of access to all who were properly recommended and even wished to see numbers at his levy as his morning circle of company might with strict propriety be called my friend Maltby and I, said Samuel Rogers, when we were very young men, had a strong desire to see Dr. Johnson, and we determined to call upon him and introduce ourselves. We accordingly proceeded to his house in Bolt Court, and I had my hand on the knocker, when our courage failed us and we retreated. Many years afterwards I mentioned this circumstance to Boswell, who said, pity that you did not go boldly in he would have received you with all kindness rogers's table talk page nine for johnson's levy see post seventeen seventy in dr maxwell's collectonia mr langton was exceedingly surprised when the sage first appeared he had not received the smallest intimation of his figure dress or manner from perusing his writings he fancied he should see a decent well-dressed in short a remarkably decorous philosopher instead of which down from his bedchamber about noon came as newly risen a huge uncouth figure in a little dark wig which scarcely covered his head and his clothes hanging loose about him but his conversation was so rich, so animated, and so forcible, and his religious and political opinions so congenial with those in which Langton had been educated, that he conceived for him that veneration and attachment which he ever preserved. Johnson was not the less ready to love Mr. Langton for his being of a very ancient family, for I have heard him say with pleasure, Langton, sir, has a grant of free warren from Henry the Second, and Cardinal Stephen Langton in King John's reign was of this family. Footnote. George Langton, writes Mr. Best in his Memorials, page 66, showed me his pedigree, with the names and arms of the families with which his own had intermarried. It was engrossed on a piece of parchment about ten inches broad and twelve to fifteen feet long. It leaves off but the reign of Queen Elizabeth, said he. End of footnote. Topham Beauclair, Anno Domini, 1752. Mr. Langton afterwards went to pursue his studies at Trinity College, Oxford, where he formed an acquaintance with his fellow-student, Mr. Topham Beauclair. Footnote. Topham Beauclair was the only son of Lord Sidney Beauclair, fifth son of the first Duke of St. Albans. 
he was therefore the great-grandson of charles the second and nell gwynne he was born in december seventeen thirty nine in my dr johnson his friends and his critics i have put together such facts as i could find about langton and beauclerc and a footnote who though their opinions and modes of life were so different that it seemed utterly improbable that they should at all agree had so ardent a love of literature so acute an understanding such elegance of manners and so well discerned the excellent qualities of mr langton a gentleman eminent not only for worth and learning but for an inexhaustible fund of entertaining conversation that they became intimate friends footnote mr best describes langton as a very tall meagre long-visaged man much resembling a stork standing on one leg near the shore in raphael's cartoon of the miraculous draught of fishes his manners were in the highest degree polished his conversation mild equable and always pleasing best's memorials page sixty two miss hawkins writes if i were called on to name the person with whom johnson might have been seen to the fairest advantage i should certainly name mr langton miss hawkins's memoirs volume one page one four four mrs piozzi wrote in eighteen seventeen i remember when to have langton at a man's house stamped him at once a literary character haywood's piozzi volume two page two o three and a footnote topham beauclair itart forty three johnson soon after this acquaintance began passed a considerable time at oxford footnote in the summer of seventeen fifty nine see post under april of fifteen seventeen fifty eight and seventeen fifty nine and a footnote he at first thought it strange that langton should associate so much with one who had the character of being loose both in his principles and practice but by degrees he himself was fascinated mr beauclerc's being of the st albans family and having in some particulars a resemblance to charles the second contributed in johnson's imagination to throw a lustre upon his other qualities Footnote. lord chalmont said that beauclerc possessed an exquisite taste various accomplishments and the most perfect good breeding he was eccentric often querulous entertaining a contempt for the generality of the world which the politeness of his manners could not always conceal but to those whom he liked most generous and friendly devoted at one time to pleasure at another to literature sometimes absorbed in play sometimes in books he was altogether one of the most accomplished and when in good humour and surrounded by those who suited his fancy one of the most agreeable men that could possibly exist lord charmond's life volume one page two hundred and ten hawkins writes life page four two two that over all his behaviour there beamed such a sunshine of cheerfulness and good humour as communicated itself to all around him mrs piozzi said of him 
Totten Beauclair, wicked and profligate as he wished to be accounted, was yet a man of very strict veracity. Oh, Lord, how I did hate that horrid Beauclair! Haywood's Piozzi, Volume 1, page 348. Rogers, Table Talk, page 40, said that Beauclair was a strangely absent person. He once went to dress for a dinner party in his own house. He forgot all about his guests, thought that it was bedtime, and got into bed. His servant, coming to tell him that his guests were waiting for him, found him fast asleep. End of footnote. And in a short time the moral, pious Johnson and the gay, dissipated Beauclair were companions. What a coalition, said Garrick when he heard of this. I shall have my old friend to bail out of the roundhouse. Footnote. It was to the roundhouse that Captain Booth was first taken in Fielding's Amelia, Book 1, Chapter 2, End of Footnote. But I can bear testimony that it was a very agreeable association. Beauclair was too polite and valued learning and wit too much to offend Johnson by sallies of infidelity or licentiousness, and Johnson delighted in the good qualities of Beauclair and hoped to correct the evil. Innumerable were the scenes in which Johnson was amused by these young men. Beauclair could take more liberty with him than anybody with whom I ever saw him. But on the other hand, Beauclair was not spared by his respectable companion when reproof was proper. Beauclair had such a propensity to satire that at one time Johnson said to him, You never open your mouth but with intention to give pain and you have often given me pain not from the power of what you said but from seeing your intention at another time applying to him with a slight alteration a line of pope he said thy love of folly and thy scorn of fools Footnote. blends an exception to all general rules your taste of follies with our scorn of fools Pope Moral Essays, Epistle 2, line 275, into footnote. Everything thou dost shows the one, and everything thou sayst the other. At another time he said to him, Thy body is all vice, and thy mind all virtue. Beauclair, not seeming to relish the compliment, Johnson said to him, Nay, sir, Alexander the Great marching in triumph into Babylon could not have desired to have had more said to him. Johnson the Idle Apprentice, Anno Domini, 1752 Johnson was some time with Beauclair at his house at Windsor, where he was entertained with experiments in natural philosophy. Footnote in the college which the club was to set up at St. Andrews, Beauclair was to have the chair of natural philosophy. Boswell's Hebrides, August the 25th, and a footnote. One Sunday, when the weather was very fine, Beauclair enticed him insensibly to saunter about all the morning. 
they went into a churchyard in the time of divine service and johnson laid himself down at his ease upon one of the tombstones now sir said beauclerc you are like hogarth's idle apprentice when johnson got his pension beauclerc said to him in the humorous phrase of falstaff i hope you will now purge and live cleanly like a gentleman Footnote. i'll purge and leave sack and live cleanly as a nobleman should do henry the fourth part one eight five scene four and a footnote a frisk with beauclerc and langton i tab forty four one night when beauclerc and langton had supped at a tavern in london and sat till about three in the morning it came into their heads to go and knock up johnson and see if they could prevail on him to join them in a ramble they rapped violently at the door of his chambers in the temple till at last he appeared in his shirt with his little black wig on top of his head instead of a nightcap and a poker in his hand imagining probably that some ruffians were coming to attack him when he discovered who they were and was told their errand he smiled and with great good humour agreed to their proposal what is it you you dogs i'll have a frisk with you he was soon dressed and they sallied forth together into covent garden where the greengrocers and fruiterers were beginning to arrange their hampers just come in from the country johnson made some attempts to help them but the honest gardener stared so at his figure and manner and odd interference that he soon saw his services were not relished they then repaired to one of the neighbouring taverns and made a bowl of that liquor called bishop footnote bishop a cant word for a mixture of wine oranges and sugar johnson's dictionary End footnote. which johnson had always liked while in joyous contempt of sleep from which he had been roused he repeated the festive lines short o short then be thy reign and give us to the world again Footnote. mr langton has recollected or dr johnson repeated the passage wrong the lines are in lord lansdowne's drinking song to sleep and run thus short very short be then thy reign for i'm in haste to laugh and drink again lord lansdowne was the granville of pope's couplet but why then publish granville the polite and knowing walsh would tell me i could write prologue to the satire's epistle one line one three five end of footnote they did not stay long but walked down to the thames took a boat and rode to billingsgate beauclerc and johnson were so well pleased with their amusement that they resolved to persevere in dissipation for the rest of the day but langton deserted them being engaged to breakfast with some young ladies johnson scolded him for leaving his social friends to go and sit with a set of wretched unideared girls garrick being told of this ramble said to him smartly I heard of your frolic t'other night you'll be in the chronicle upon which johnson afterwards observed he durst not do such a thing his wife would not let him 
End of section 28.